Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club will present a feast of Group 2 racing at Rosehill Gardens on February the 20th, including the time-honoured Hobartville Stakes, the Silver Slipper for the two-year-olds and the Millie Fox Stakes for the fillies and mares with prize money of $200,000. One week later, it's back to Randwick for some Group 1 action in the Chipping Norton and the Surround Stakes with a great support program. The Group 2 Sweet Embrace and the Group 2 Skyline should shed some light on the Golden Slipper, while the great Guy Walter will be remembered with the running of a Group 2 race named in his honour. Serious racing fans are straining at the leash as Sydney Racing presents a magnificent autumn carnival for 2021. Greg Childs was working on a commercial business model two years before he retired from race riding at the end of 2008. After years of consultation with fellow jockeys, he could see there was a market for a lighter, more streamlined body protector for people in a range of equine activities. He co-founded a company called Viper, standing for Velocity Impact Body Protector. The company launched in 2007 to an enthusiastic reception. Sales were beyond expectations and Greg's life became busy beyond expectations. A year later, at age 46, he made the very important decision to bring down the curtain on a 31-year career as a professional jockey. And what a career it had been. 2,100 winners, 72 at Group 1 level, success on the international stage and the opportunity to ride two of the best horses seen in Australasia early in the new millennium. Throw in two Melbourne Jockeys Premierships, a New Zealand Apprentices title, two Cox Plates, two Caulfield Cups, any number of Oaks and Derbies, and you've got a record befitting one of the best jockeys of his generation. May I welcome to the podcast Greg Childs for a long overdue chat. Great to catch up, Gregory. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, beautiful introduction, and uh, and you've um, explained it beautifully. Thanks, mate. Now, firstly, may I say we're recording this podcast the day after you celebrated your 59th birthday, and it's almost 13 years since you quit the saddle. Yes, yes, and I have great memories. How do I address the man who runs Viper? Are you the CEO or the managing director? Uh, managing director. Um, we don't have a CEO uh, <laughs> because my wife's. We're in partnership, yeah. and there's nobody. Uh, we're all equal, and um, yeah, we we run the business together, and uh, the business is thriving, booming, Go- going gangbusters, as they say. Yes. Um, that's right, John. We, as you explained early, that uh, prior to my retirement, it became compulsory that all jockeys and track riders must wear a body protector. Mm. And um, the ones that were being offered to us for sale weren't as comfortable, and I reckon I could improve it. And you certainly have, and you now manufacture and distribute the product, and you're catering for people not only in thoroughbred racing, but in many different equine areas. Well, that's right, John. Um, As we all become more safety conscious around animals and especially horse riding, um, the equestrian world in Australia was probably a little bit slow on the uptake as the body protectors were first introduced into England, uh, some probably five years prior um, like prior to 19, um, uh, 2008. Um, so when they came to Australia, 
for the jockeys and track riders, the equestrian world was probably five years later. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's where our business has grown, not only into track riding jockeys, it's now the equestrian world, pony club kids, mm-hmm. leisure riders, adult riders, the harness racing have come on board. Mm-hmm. And the business continues to grow as we develop new body protectors for each separate discipline. You have a warehouse on the property there in Melbourne? Yes. Um, we were fortunate. Um, well, when I was race riding, we brought uh, land, um, and I brought the land when my children were first born, knowing that we would like to give them an upbringing how I and my wife, Diane, was brought up, in New Ze- both of us brought up in New Zealand on farmland, and we wanted to give our children the same opportunities, being around animals and horses. So uh, in 2000, uh, 1997, mm. we brought 20 acres of land and um, we built a house on it. And as we, um, as I retired and extended my business, we built a warehouse on the back of uh, my garage. Mm. And uh, that's where we sell our Viper body protectors to the world. And you're at a place called Greenvale, Greg. Not all that far from Melbourne, is it? No, it's uh, just a suburb on the outskirts of Melbourne, very close to the Tullamarine Airport. Mm. Um, So we have easy access to flit back to New Zealand when we need to um, because all our family's back in New Zealand, my Mm. wife's and and my family, and Mm. um, that was targeted to be close to the airport. But also we wanted to be close to a pony club grounds mm. yep. um, because knowing that we were going to bring up our children around and involved in horse riding and uh, the Tullamarine Pony Club was uh, very close by as well. So we had a plan and uh, some 25 years on, it's all fallen into place and life's going good. And we'll talk about your twin children a little later, both jockeys, Jordan and Taylor. Now, I'm going to save your recollections of Sunline and Northerly until the latter part of the podcast. So let's begin with your early days at Hawera in the Taranaki region on the North Island of New Zealand. You were apprenticed to Brian Deacon and you rode your first winner on your home track at your seventh ride in a race in 1978. The horse was called Stormy. Do you remember the race? I do. Yes, I do. Um, it was my seventh ride. Um, my boss, Brian Deacon, was a similar to a Theo Green in Sydney or a um, Frank King here in Melbourne, um, a great trainer and educator of young jockeys. And I was uh, serving my apprenticeship at the same time of Gary Stewart, mm. who was the, the rider of Bone Crusher. Um, and Brian Deacon also produced other riders in the name of Morris Campbell, who was associated with a champion horse called Bell Marino, mm. Jimmy Walker, um, Peter Hurdle. Cross. Yeah. Viander Cross, that's mm. right, uh, Jimmy Walker. Um, so th- th- there's been a number of riders come through the ranks indentured to Brian Deacon and Hara. And um, I was fortunate enough to have my seventh – well, my seventh ride was on Stormy, um, yeah. and it was probably – I got my license in March, mm-hmm. um, and I, and my seventh ride and was stormy in August. So it was a slow introduction. I wasn't that I was a slow learner. It's just that mm-hmm. Brian Deacon just liked to let the jockeys develop and take mm-hmm. their time. And we did a lot of barrier trialing and um, get a lot, a lot of experience like that, and and mm-hmm. slowly handled us into the racing world and. The 1st of August in 1978 was the introduction of the four-kilo claim for apprentices. Mm. So I was the beneficiary of that. Um, In August, I had my, as we stated, seventh ride on Stormy, and Mm. she won at my local, at our home track, Hara. And uh, it was one of the second, it was was what they called the second leg of the double. And... uh, um, yeah, we bolted in. Well, I wouldn't say bolt in, but we won by about two or three lengths going away. And mm-hmm. Stormy went on to be a uh, a group. Um, I'm just not sure if she was a group one winner, but she was definitely group two place, uh, mm. group two winner, yeah. and group one placed. So she was a pretty handy horse coming through the ranks when I got on her. Mm. The first really nice horse you got to ride was Summer Hayes, 
who gave you your first Group 1 win in the Manawatu Sires Produce, a very highly thought-of race over there. She was a good two- and three-year-old filly, Summer Hayes. Yes, she was a champion two-year-old of her time. Uh, I think this was 1979. Mm. Um, so I was not. I was still an apprentice, and uh, I rode this filly in a barrier trial for a trainer called Dick Bothwell, mm-hmm. who unfortunately has since only a couple of years ago passed on. Um, but Summer Hayes was a flying machine. The first, she won the first two-year-old race of the season um, that year, and she went on to win. I think it was seven in a row, mm-hmm. and. Um, that as and I and it was in March '79 mm-hmm. that I rode her in the Manawatu size produce, uh, which is a Group One two-year-old race over mm-hmm. 1,400 meters, and uh, we won that race, and that was my first Group One win. Mm. You had a wonderful apprenticeship. You won the junior title in '79-80, and uh, that win was even more impressive in view of the fact that there was another hot-shot apprentice around at the same time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, very hot-shot. Uh, Jimmy Cassidy. Yeah. We were um, – he might have been a year behind me, um, uh, but uh, he, he was – him and myself were competing for the jockey's premiership, mm. and uh, we had many a tussle in, out there on the track, and um, – yeah, we have some fond. Me- I have some fond memories up against Jimmy at those times. Mm. You must have had a sense of adventure early in life, because in 1985 you accepted an invitation from an American bloodstock agent you'd actually met in New Zealand to try your luck in the United States. Away goes Greg Childs, uh, and you rode about seven winners, and it was a hell of an experience. Yes, it was. Um... Again, that was uh, when I first landed in America, um, jockeys coming up from New Zealand to ride in America was like a Fijian rider coming to ride in Melbourne. Mm. Um, very unheard of. Um, no, I, Not that I'd known any New Zealand jockeys had taken that step, but I had an opportunity to live with Brian McCaughey, um, and he was to introduce me to some trainers at Hollywood Park and Santa Anita mm. and to see if I could, you know, get a few rides. And as it turned out, um, I had seven winners, uh, three at Hollywood Park, mm. um, two at Del Mar. Mm. No, three at Del Mar. Uh, th- yeah, three at Del Mar and one yeah. in Louisiana Downs. Mm. So, um, but to have my, before I got my first ride in America, I was riding track work every day and it was every day for a month before mm. I got my first opportunity. Mm. And I was on a horse, the name escapes me, but it was having its first start. I was having my first ride at Hollywood Park. Mm. And halfway through the race, it had a bl- – uh, sorry, halfway through yeah, – and I completed that race and it finished well down the track. Mm. It was three weeks later or two weeks later, I had my second ride on the same horse. Mm. And halfway through that race at Hollywood Park, it had a bleeding attack, collapsed and died. Goodness me. So I got the ambulance ride back to the jockey's room. But to cut a long story short, I stuck it out and uh, and in the end I rode seven winners during my stay. Which is great dinner party material. Yes, that's right. <laughs> True story. And uh, yeah. I was always going to go back, John, the following year um, to calculate on all the hard work I'd done mm. because I wanted to go back to New Zealand um, I was stable rider for a leading trainer called Ray Werner at the time, mm. and we had some nice horses coming up through the ranks, and I wanted to be a part of that. Um, so I went back to New Zealand around uh, end of August, early September, mm. and um, to calculate on all that, and then was going to go back the following year, but I had a, a, a riding accident and damaged my knee mm. uh, just prior to going back to America in May. So I never got there, and, and the year after that I got married, and mm. I just never got that opportunity to go back. You got your first taste of Melbourne racing in the spring of 1990. You came over to ride three horses for the man you just mentioned, Ray Verner, 
Royal Creation, Mr Brooker and The Gentry. And all three of them race well in Melbourne. In fact, I think you won the Geelong Cup on Mr Brooker and you ran third in Kingston Rules Melbourne Cup on the same horse in 1990. I bet that whetted your appetite. Yes, it sure did, John. I'll just correct you on that. Um, I came over to ride two for Ray Verner, and they were the Gentry yeah. and Raw Creation. Right. And the third horse, Mr. Brooker, was trained by Peter Hurdle, ah, who I yeah. um, served my apprenticeship with. Um, and there was some some 10 years on that Peter became a trainer and trained mm. Mr. Brooker. Mm. And I had won the Hawke's Bay Cup on Mr. Brooker in New Zealand, and then they decided to bring him over for the Melbourne Cup. So I had these three horses um, hoping – well, the plan of attack, John, was in 1990, I'd reached – or 1989, mm. 90, I'd reached a lot of my goals in New Zealand, and I just felt New Zealand was stagnant with its prize money, and um, I needed new challenges. And as I said, the prize money was, wasn't going anywhere. So I was hoping – well, I was coming over to ride these three horses in 1990 during the Melbourne Cup Spring Carnival, and I was hoping these horses would help springboard me into Melbourne racing. I'd recently got married to Diane, and um, we thought we'll stick it around after the carnival for mm. three months and see how we go, hoping one of these horses would springboard us into Melbourne racing, which they did. Mm. Uh, Mr. Brooker winning the Melbourne, uh, winning the Geelong Cup, mm. Royal Creation running second to uh, better loosen up at the time, mm. the superstar of the, the carnival. So these horses, you know, kept me in the limelight, and they did help springboard me into Melbourne racing. And three months turned into thirty-three years. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's a great story. Your first Aussie Group One win was in a very famous two-year-old race in Perth called the Karakata Plate. And it was on a horse um, our listeners will remember, Yuma Tiller, who was trained by Tommy Hughes. And Tommy Hughes was one of the first Melbourne trainers to really get behind Greg Childs, wasn't he? He, he was. Um, I um, Ray Verner with Royal Creation and the Gingery were based up at Ballarat. And... Um, Actually, when I flew into Melbourne, I was picked up by Mark Broadford. Um, Grant Cooksley and myself were flying into Melbourne for the carnival, and Mark Broadford was a good friend with Grant Cooksley. Mm. And uh, Mark picked us up at the airport and took us to our accommodation. Um, and Mark was riding track work. Mark's uh, an ex-jockey mm. and um, champion apprentice he was. And he was riding track work for Tommy Hughes. And he says, look, why don't you come down and ride track work for Tom?" Um, I'll introduce you and um, see where it goes. Mm. So in between riding track work at Ballarat at different days, I would uh, front up at Flemington and introduce Tommy Hughes and rode track work there and he eventually gave me some race rides and we had some success. And um, and um, along the following year, I think it was, along came Hugh Matilla mm. and a promising horse two-year-old and yeah. they decided to take it to Perth, take him to Perth and I flew over and rode him and, and won yeah. the Karakara Clape on uh, New on um, Boxing Day. Correct. Now Bart Cummings started to throw you on a few in Victoria and that led you to a brilliant hat trick on a filly called Richfield Lady in 1991. The Thousand Guineas, the Wakeful and the VRC Oaks. I imagine that would have endeared you to Bart. Yes. Um, I mean, most jockeys, you know, would, you know, break their left leg to ride for Bart Cummings. Um, well, not break it. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, they, that's an old Hollywood they, term. Go out there and break a leg. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But um, so, again, it's all about, you know, the, you've got to have a work ethic no matter what you do in life. And, mm. uh and I was lucky I was brought up with that work ethic with my boss, Brian Deacon, and, you know, hard work creates opportunities. And uh, mm. after writing track work for Tommy Hughes at Flemington, I would then pop down and I introduced myself to uh, Bart Cummings' foreman, Leon Corstens at the mm. time. Yeah. And um, he said, yep, sure, jump on. We'll put you on this one and that one. And 
I rode track work for Bart for a little while and then um, an opportunity came and I rode a few horses for Bart mm. up in the country and had success, some success and mm. that's how it all starts. And, mm. yeah, um, at that time, um, Dennis Marks, a horse owner with Bart Cummings, brought two horses from New Zealand, mm. Richfield Lady and Let's Elope. Mm. And... Um, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to ride Let's Elope and mm. uh, some barrier jump outs before she had her first start for Bart. Mm. And she went well in those barrier jump outs. And Bart gave me a chance to ride Richfield Lady in, in her mm. race. And um, it just went from there. Richfield Lady went on to be a, a superstar. Top Philly, my word. You were absolutely flying in the 1991 92 season. And you won the first of your two Melbourne Jockeys premierships. That must have been the moment you said to yourself, Gregory, you've made it in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I was, yep, that's true. Um, it had been a goal to try and make Melbourne um, an opportunity or make Melbourne home. Um, as I said, back in 1990, we started out to give it three months. We worked hard. And I say we because my wife, we had no children at the time and, you know, she would drive to the races. We went to a lot of these tracks we didn't know how to get to. There was no GPS tracking. Um, so, you know, she would drive, I would rest because I'd done a lot of track work in the mornings. Mm. And the hard work does pay off. Um, it was the following year, 1991-92 season, mm. I was crown champion jockey. And um, it was a privilege and an honour. And I had some great trainers that were backing me, along mm. with Tommy Hughes, Bart Cummings. There was a number of other trainers like Angus Armanasco, mm. Rick Orlacey. Yeah. Um, and they were all flying champion trainers. And mm. I was given the opportunities and I took them with both hands. You put the toe in the water in Hong Kong around 1993 and you had a stroke of luck when Laurie Laxon put you on a beautiful mare called Romany Conti in the Hong Kong Cup. You won that race. You beat Fra, who would go on to win the Caulfield Cup later that year. She was a bonnie mare, Romany Conti. Yes. Uh, yes, she was. and She was. And a great broodmare, um, as I'll tell you in a minute. But um, again, it's all about opportunities, being in the right place at the right time and, and taking them with both hands. Um, I got the ride on Romani Conti in April for the Hong Kong Cup. Mm -hmm. The Hong Kong Cup is always traditionally run in December, but during that year there was a, a disease, a horse disease going around, mm -hmm. and uh, Hong Kong cancelled the Hong Kong racing for a month during the month of December and postponed the Hong Kong Cup to April. Mm -hmm. I happened to be getting, I got a three-month jockey's licence as stable as a club rider during um, those last three months of the Hong Kong season, April, May, June. And uh, I was riding track work. Romani Conti, Laurie Laxon, brought Romani Conti up for the Hong Kong Cup um, and wanted a jockey that knew the track, and I was there. Um, he offered me the ride. I'd, I'd had a lot of success with Laurie back in New Zealand mm. prior to this. So Laurie and me had always got on very well. He offered me the ride. Um, the Vela brothers, mm. um, Philip and um, um, Peter. Uh, Peter, that's right. Philip who, and Peter. Who was Vela. now a knight of the realm. Yes, yes. Um, they owned Romani Conti and uh, mm. I picked up the ride, rode it and won the Hong Kong Cup. Mm. Um and it was a great thrill yeah. because, you know, we had New Zealand, Australia all watching. And mm. so, yeah, that, that, that was cementing my place in Hong Kong racing for a period of time. 1997-98 was a hell of a season for you. You won your second Melbourne Premiership, which earned you the coveted Scobie Breezley Medal presented by the great man himself. That mm. must have sent a tingle yes. down your spine. Yes, yeah, it was a great honour. Uh, the Scobie Breezley is held in very high regard in Victoria Racing. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that we all strive to win. Um, you don't focus on it. Um, that is, you know, it's a bonus at the end of the season if you win that. 
Um, but that means you've had a successful year. You've consistently ridden winners, uh, you know, week on week. And um, yes, I was. I happened to have won the premiership that year, and also had a lot of success. And uh, the Scobie Breezley was the cream on top, and the cream on top of the cream was that Scobie <laughs> Breezley was alive and yeah. he presented it to me, and it was a great honour because mm. he was such a a champion jockey around the world. Mm. He certainly was, and a great gentleman who lived well into his nineties, and he a really in- pleasant, yeah, um, lovely kind, man, humble, a lovely person. man, and and so much knowledge not only in racing but in politics and everything he, mm. he was he was a trainer in usa for a period of time yeah he trained um, i think about, in barbados yeah, yeah well yeah i'm not sure i knew well barbados um and in england and I think, yeah yeah that's right that's yeah, he right. trained in england successfully yeah he did train in usa didn't he um, I don't or was it barbados? I'm, I'm thinking more of the caribbean barbados right okay yeah. anyhow um, he was a knowledgeable man, and uh, yeah, it was a real honour to be presented with the Scobie Breezley, and mm. it continues on to today. Now, Gregory, when I look at the list of questions that I have here to fire at you, I realise that we're going to start striding along a bit here. Now, in the second uh, half of that season, 97 98, Leon McDonald came looking for you to ride his very good three-year-old in a couple of good races in Melbourne. You won the Amy Classic and the Australian Guineas on Gull Guru. The horse then came to Sydney where Shane Dye won the Randvet Stakes on him. He ran second to Might and Power in the Mercedes Classic and then came the Derby. Shane could have ridden him but got off him to ride Tie the Knot. That's correct, yes. And... uh... Leon rang me to ride Gold Guru in the derby, and he, he was second favourite. Gold Guru was second favourite. Tie the Knot was the favourite, and, mm. I mean, that's probably the ride most jockeys would have chosen. Mm. And I and Shane Dye did the right thing there, but um, you, can't, you can't ride them all. Mm. So the opportunity came for me, and I jumped at it, knowing Gold Guru had a lot of success on him, mm. and uh, rode him and won the AJC Derby beating Tie the Knot. <laughs> mm. And there's something about the historic AJC Derby, isn't there? Yes, yes. Yeah, highly esteemed race. Mm. Um, you know, these races, like the AJC Derby, the VRC Derby, um, you know, they're known all around the world. And mm. But that AJC Derby does, uh, does lift your profile if you win that. You gave the career of a young Anthony Cummings an almighty boost when you rode his first Group 1 winner. Final card in the Gadsden Stakes, smashing a very old track record. Now, that meant a lot to young Anthony because at that time, Greg, he was living in the shadow of his father. Yes, that's right. Um, Anthony hadn't been training for that long, but he had this uh, very good horse called Final Card who, who showed a lot of um, promise coming through the ranks and that was his first step into the major league. Had a light weight and I was able to – I was able because Anthony would stable his horses at Bart's stable and I was there riding track work for Bart and um, rode, for, rode this horse Final Card for Anthony and some jump outs and uh, was given the opportunity to ride in a race, and, uh, yeah, he just flew down that front straight and mm. broke the record. Ori Starr's record, which had been set in the 1940s. Now, Greg, stand by there for a moment. We're going to pause for a quick break on the podcast, and when we come back, I'm going to uh, cajole you, encourage you to talk about a certain mare that played a very <laughs> big part in your life and your career. Back with Greg Childs after this break. With another strong English classic sale done and dusted, yearling buyers will now focus on the English Premier sale over three busy days, Sunday, February 28, Monday, March the 1st, and Tuesday, March the 2nd. 804 yearlings have been catalogued, 590 in the Premier, 214 in the showcase session at the world-class Oaklands Auditorium in Melbourne. English believe... 
This is the strongest premier catalogue ever produced. 75 individual vendors will offer the progeny of 118 stallions, including several impressive first season sires. 466 of the yearlings are Vobus nominated, 474 are Bob's eligible. Since 2018, 15 Group 1 winners have come out of this sale, including top liners like Nature Strip and Santa Ana Lane. Email catalogue at inglis.com.au or call 03 1422. Remember, every yearling in the catalogue will be eligible for the rich Inglis race series in 2022. The Inglis Premier Sale, February 28, March 1st and March the 2nd. Your fans and lovers of a champion will want me to ask you about Sunline. Now, here are some stats before you uh, give me your fond memories. You rode that mare 33 times, 22 wins and 11 group ones. You rode Sunline in four countries. Let me have a stab at the two wins that I think may be your personal favourites. Firstly, her second Cox Plate, when she beat the Caulfield Cup winner Dyer Tribe by seven lengths. We saw something freakish that day. Uh, Greg, I remember watching it. I was hosting the Saturday afternoon program on Sky Racing, watching on a monitor, and uh, I got quite teary. I got a bit emotional. Mm, mm. Yes. Um, that was her second Cox Plate, and she just just blew them out of the park. Mm. Um, she was right on top of her game. All her lead-up form was impeccable. Um, there was one blimp. Uh, she ran second, but that just um, – it was on a wet track, and she just – just actually, that race brought her to her peak, mm. and uh, in that Cox Plate, there was a lot of talk. They were going to put the pressure on her, and they were going to do this and do that. She wasn't going to get it all her own way in front, but as it turned out, we put the pressure on them, <laughs> and they cracked, and she it's went home to win by seven and a half lengths. Fr- from a horse who'd won the Caulfield Cup a week earlier. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was just, just so dominant. At that year, um, she not only won the 2000 meter race, she won the 1200 meter group one race, mm. um, the Matacado Stakes. Yeah, um, was, and um, yeah, she was just a freak near traveled that, the world. Yeah, well, I'm just about to lead up to the race that I think might be your second favorite win on Sunline. Five weeks after the second Cox Plate, you lined up in the Hong Kong Mile, in which you led and you held off the local champion, Fairy King Prawn. It was an incredible race. It was a wonderful call um, by David Raphael, who really uh, painted the picture for the world, and I get goosebumps thinking about it now. Yes. um, There was the Australasian horse, Sunline, coming up, representing New Zealand and Australia because she was, you know, she was done so much racing in Australia. She was part of the fabric here and taking on the local champ, Fairy King Prawn, who all of China, all of Hong Kong were cheering for. Mm. So it was a match made in heaven. Um, and, yeah, the race produced it, uh, a match made in heaven, and that halfway down, Sunline had kick, kicked clear of the pack Mm. and was probably two, two and a half lengths clear with 200 metres to go. And then all of a sudden, the local champ, Fairy King Prawn, was coming from out of the pack and laying his challenge down. And as the post got closer and closer, the crowd was screaming louder and louder as Fairy King Prawn kept pushing forward, pushing forward. And right on the line, we hit it. And I and I remember hitting it, thinking, "Ah, shit! I think I've got it, but I'm not sure." The crowd were wanting Fairy King Prawn. Robbie Frad, he he'd sort of gone away to the left. I'd gone around the corner as we were pulling up, mm-hmm. and I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I was asking the clerk 
who was coming towards me, but he was Chinese, and I was saying, who won it, who won it? And he was telling me, but it was in Chinese. I don't know why he was telling me that in Chinese. <laughs> um, but he was excited yeah. too. But anyhow, as it turned out, and I didn't know until I actually trotted around and got a bit closer to somebody that could speak English and said, Sunline yeah. wins it. So, uh, yeah, it was a great thrill. We had the weight of two nations. Yes, you did. Everyone was cheering for – everyone in Australia was cheering for Sunline and all of mm. New Zealand naturally was, mm. and uh, we got the result. Yeah, great thrill. She had to do the donkey work in most of her races, and she was a sitting duck for a good horse – who'd had a cushy run in the race, in any race, but she hated him to get past her, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, she, she's like these great horses. You know, they, they you never die wondering. They throw everything at it to win. They want to win. They're just competitors. And uh, she was like that, and her record speaks for itself with 33, uh, 33 or 34 races. Mm. And... Uh, she won 22 of them. Yeah. Now, just describe to me her temperament on race day. I watched her at Randwick a couple of times when I was downstairs working for Sky Racing. And, uh, you know, most horses before any race will be on the toe. They'll look as though the adrenaline's flowing. Some get quite hot. Not sunline. She used to strut like a peacock around the birdcage. She mm. seemed to know she was better than them. Nothing phased her. Yes. She um, she was quite a dominant mare to look at as well physically. Um, but she, she had an era of, you know, dominance. Um, she did strut herself. She always carried her head quite high. Claire Bird, who... Mm you know, was the strapper of Sunline, had a great association with her, mm -hmm. and she would often remind me when I get on, um, just remember Greg to, uh, well, Claire's the one that pointed it out. She always goes to the gates. She likes to go to the gates close to the running rail, and she's always more relaxed when she mm -hmm. does that. Yeah. Um, and she would just remind me of what to do, and that would be to get it off her chest that mm -hmm. she's done her bit. Um, she knew her so well because she rode her all her track work. Mm. So when I got on, because I only got on mainly on race day, and um, it was a team effort. We gelled together, the whole team, Stephen, McKee, yeah. Trevor's son, uh, Claire, myself, and um, we kept it pretty tight, mm. and we travelled the world and had a whole lot of success. Mm. Did she ever over-race with you, Greg, in front? Did she ever want to um, rip and tear a bit? The, the fact that she got her head up sometimes created that impression. Yeah, she probably only only one time um, mm. was in Dubai where she was a bit flustered. Mm. Um, it was a night meeting. She had travelled a bloody long way to get there. Mm. And, yeah, she was just a little bit uptight um, in the mounting yard. In the race, we jumped away cleanly but she was just over racing she did over race um and i'd bear in mind that i knew it was a hell of a long straight so i didn't want to i didn't want to let her go too much because i didn't want her to overdo it because it was a long run in yeah so if yeah it was that day that's the only time that she did you can recall pull, yeah right. yeah that's right other than that she mm. was a dreamboat ride i mean i still had to control her and i still mm. had to make sure she didn't overdo it. Mm. Um, she always travelled like a winner. She was always on the bridle, mm. but you never wanted to let her stride too much. Mm. Her third Cox Plate in 2001 really captured the headlines. Close to home, she shifted out, northerly shifted in, and Viscount in between them struck trouble, some of which he might have caused himself. Now, there were two protests, Greg, you against Northerly and Viscount against both of you. What's your take 20 years on? Yes. Um, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a great race and a, and a great aftermath and a good talking point. Um, but I believe at the end of the day, the result was correct mm. and that placing stood. 
Northerly first, Sunline second, Viscount third. Mm. What was happening was around the turn, I just couldn't break away from Northerly. He kept, or the pack, I should say. Um, we like to quicken. We'd, we'd take off early on Sunline because she could quicken around the corner and she would get two or three lengths break on the rest of the pack mm. and they couldn't run us down. We'd had too much of an advantage being a short straight. But on this occasion, I just couldn't get away from the pack. They were always there. Sunline was at a top halfway down, and she started to lay out because she just – she again, she was trying her heart out, and she was labouring, wandering out. Northerly had a tendency always in his career to lay in, Yeah. and Damien had to switch the stick into the left hand as he was challenging halfway down. And we got little Viscount, a three-year-old, trying to poke up in between us. And he was um, going for a tight gap that was marginally there, was it there, debatable. Mm. And he couldn't quite get in it. Sunline moved out slightly because I believe Northerly pushed Viscount onto Sunline's bum, which mm. turned her out, or her shoulder out. Mm. And anyhow, created a lot of uh, confusion we had an inquiry and placing stood. You must have been the envy of every jockey in the Southern Hemisphere when you were riding Northerly and Sunline in the same time frame, if circumstances permitted. Now, Greg, some may have forgotten that your record on Northerly was unblemished. Six rides for six wins, including three Group 1s. He wasn't yes. an easy horse to ride, was he? He wasn't a dream ride by any means. No, no, he was he was a hard horse all the way through uh, for Fred Kersley, and he he did a terrific job because I remember one time I was I think it was prior to the core or it was it was one of the lead up races towards the Caulfield Cup that I went out to ride him in track work at Caulfield where he was stabled and we would walk under the tunnel uh, to get to the middle. Um, and Northerly was, um, had a rogue element in him, and mm. if he didn't want to do something, he wouldn't, and he would rear and rear high. And so I couldn't get him to go. We were halfway through the tunnel, and then he decided I don't want to go any further. <laughs> I want to go back home. Mm. So he started rearing, and we spinning him. he was spinning us around, and we were trying to spin him the other way around, and he was rearing. And, we couldn't get him onto the track, so we then had to go to Plan B, which mm. we there was a gap halfway through the tunnel where we had to go up to a smaller track and take another way to get onto the course proper. So he, he and even race day, he would never travel like a winner. He was always had his head up, floating. Um, you'd never know whether you were in with a chance or not. Mm. But when you did squeeze him, he would definitely pick up and picked up big time. So he was a complete opposite type of horse to Sunline, where she always travelled like a winner. He, northerly, never did, but they both had that same determination. Mm. Greg, just to illustrate the increasing value of money uh, over the years and generation by generation, Sunline and northerly won $20 million between them. Hmm. Winks won more than that by herself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. But look, you know, I, you know, you, like everybody, we don't look. You don't look at the prize money. Um, I mean, huge prize money in Australia as of today. I mean, mm. we have these huge bonus races: um, the the All Star Mile, um, the Everest. Mm. Uh, they're not even group races. I mean, but their prize money is out of this world. Mm. So, you know, that's just nature of um, time um, with racing being so popular and so many people wanting or um, sponsors want to be part of racing, which mm. is great. Hence the move that I made many years ago to Australia was the best move I ever did. Mm. But um, Sunline's group status holds its own. Um, you know, she was... Um, champion New Zealand 
uh, racehorse. She was champion Australia racehorse three times running. Um, she holds her own in, in society and horse racing. Now let's pay tribute to your two jockey kids. Jordan, who's going very well, is tall at 173 centimetres. Taylor is 157 centimetres or five feet two. Now, it's hard to believe they're twins. Yeah, chalk and cheese and height. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, Jordan um, has always wanted to be a jockey. Um, he was learning to do the star jump off his pony when he was 10. Was he? Um, <laughs> yeah, but he, I, I haven't seen him do it yet on a, on a horse, racehorse, after mm. a group one win, although he's only had one group one win. Mm. Um, maybe that will maybe uh, watch the space. He'll develop but, um, that, yeah. He's always had a – he's always – we brought them through, our children through the Pony Club ranks, and uh, it was a great education for them. They did horse trials and competed at a very high level in Pony Club, both of them. And uh, Jordan's gone on to be a very successful jockey. Mm. As of today, He's he's keeps improving um, and riding group winners. Yeah. Taylor, she started a little bit later. She was actually training to be a school teacher when she was 18. But as Jordan progressed with his career, making money and, and having success, she could see Jordan buy a new car, brought a house, mm. and she's the same age and she hasn't even started her career and she's saying, shit, I can ride a horse. <laughs> Let me have a crack at this. <laughs> <laughs> so she had a change of tack and yeah. um, joined into the Victoria Racing Apprentice Jockeys Program mm. at the age of uh, 19 mm. or 20, um, I think it was, uh, 19 or 20. And she has now had uh, she started her apprentice. She started race riding in March twenty twenty. Yeah, and um, she's had thirteen winners, but then she had a accident. Um, she's had more than one broke, accident, hasn't she? Yes, yeah, she she has. She's had a few yeah. accidents. She before she started race riding, um, she got bucked off a horse and fell on her kneecap and shattered that. Mm. And that put her out for nine months. And then she came back and started race riding in March. And mm. now she's broken her ankle. Yeah. And as we speak now in February 2021, mm. she's back riding track work and hoping to be uh, back in race saddle mm. in the next couple of weeks. And we so wish she's her had well. 13 winners. Yeah. She's had 13 winners under her belt and showing a lot of promise. And mm. hopefully she can go on and be successful with the at group level at some stage. How do you and Di handle the worry factor? Yeah, yeah. And that that is a worry when you're watching your young kids start out. When I was watching Jordan, knowing the risks involved in horse racing, even horse riding for that matter, um, and what can go wrong in a race, I would be quite tense and uh, – I would often be yelling at the TV screen, get in there, Jordan. You're either in the gap or you're not in the gap. Yeah, Don't yeah. be half and half. Yeah. And uh, But now, probably you know, four years after he's been racing, or five years after he's been race riding, I'm quite relaxed and more than relaxed, very comfortable watching Jordan ride. Yeah. But now I'm going through it all again with Taylor. Mm. And um, it, it is tough, and you do have your heart in your mouth. Um but you just got to believe in your kids, know what's, you know, how to ride, <laughs> mm. and, and you need a little bit of luck. And that all the good advice you've offered over so many years will uh, do its job. Yes. As, I, as, as we get older, my kids get older, they, Jordan, the way it works now between me and him, I says, Jordan, just, I'm going to tell you something. Just listen. If you take it on board, if you don't, I don't care, but let me get it off my chest. Good on you. i got to yeah. tell you, you, gotta, you should be doing this and should be doing that. And then we hang up and he goes his way and I'm happy. I've got it off my chest and he mm. does his thing and I do my thing. Do you feel um, in your heart he does take notice? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you'd know. And I'm, Yes, that's right. Well, I do know. Um, mm. I, I had 31 years of race riding and got to a high level. Um, 
but you know, <laughs> your kids they tend to think you don't know. That was old school. That was that's yesteryear. Right. How Dad. would you know? It's all changed now. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyhow, it, where he used where he used to like Taylor is now. Listen to every word I say. As they get older and more experienced, they tend to drop off. And mm. he was hanging, he would talk to me. I was talking to him on one time as he was going to the races, telling him this is early in his career. He'd been riding for three years and telling him mm. what he should be doing and this and that. And uh, Jordan, are you there? Jordan, mm. you can hear me. He'd hung up. Oh, <laughs> so I text, yeah. so I, so I text him. I said, you can run, but you can't hide. Yeah. You should be doing this, this and this and that. Mm. Well, you didn't let <laughs> yeah. up on him. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, that's right. And that's when we came to this agreement. Look, let me say what I've got to say. Let me get it off my chest. Yeah. Don't say nothing. And then yeah. you go your way. I go my yeah, way. Yeah, good on you. Now, Greg, apart from your genetic contribution, their mother rode seven winners in New Zealand in the amateur ranks. And yes. Di's brother, Peter Timms, was a very good rider. Yes, uh, he was, he was um, a dual rider and that he rode on the flat and was leading apprentice, I think, mm. twice. And he was a champion's jumps rider. Mm. Um, very versatile, very talented. Uh, I mean, a lot of New Zealand riders are brought up around horses and animals all their lives. So they have this natural affinity. Like myself, you know, we just, we just bond with animals and, um, and the cream comes to the top. And some of these riders, and Peter was one of them, mm. and and Diane, um, as I said earlier in my conversation, our children were always going to ride horses, um, and they've taken it to the next level now, which has mm. been jockeys. Mm. Greg, we're out of time. I had several more questions, but we'll have to leave them for another day. But it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast. We haven't had a yarn for a long time. Congratulations again on a magnificent career. Good luck going forward with the Viper safety vests and thank you so much for your time one day after your 59th birthday. Thanks, John. Um, Much appreciated. Enjoyed the chat.